Hey, that was uh, Anton Karras, the third man. Hi, everybody. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly uh, here on 99.5 FM in New York City, WBAI, free speech radio, WBAI.org. Support the station, by the way. Uh, go to uh, give the number two, WBAI.org. Give to WBAI.org. All right. All right. So um, I got to be honest with you. Uh, yesterday, uh, I taped the show for today, and it, the, the, the theme of the show was uh, a new book by Niels Melzer, uh, the special rapporteur on torture at the UN. Uh, but late in the day, um, uh, Derek Chauvin was found guilty. And Niels, to his credit, said, we got to talk about that. So uh, that's what we're doing. That show will be archived, and I'll play it at an, another date. Um, and so uh, Niels Melzer, by the way, I want to get this right, folks is the, uh, and this is right in his wheelhouse, uh, what we're going to talk about today, the uh, George Floyd uh, uh, verdict and the police brutality, et cetera. Uh, I'm gonna actually read this because I never get it right. Uh, Professor Niels Melzer is the human rights chair of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. He is also professor of international law at the University of Glasgow on November something, 2016, he uh, took up the uh, function, now dig this, this is a long acronym, if I were to spell it out as an acronym, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Boy, that's a lot, Professor Melzer. Is that what I call you, or Dr. Melzer? Let's call me Niels. Okay, I'll call you Niels. Uh, so, um, Thank you for uh, calling me up yesterday and uh, wanting to uh, change the uh, format of today's show or the theme of it. And, and so um, we spoke yesterday. You know, the jury did find uh, Officer Chauvin guilty on all three counts. What was your initial reaction? What is your reaction right now after mulling it over? Well, thanks, Randy, for having me back on, on the program. I, I, I mean, I fully agree with that verdict. Um, what we can see on, on the video footage that was made of the arrest and killing of George Floyd is a clear example of senseless police brutality and total disregard for human life and dignity, and for which there can be no justification whatsoever. Right. So, uh, but let me ask you this. It, it, I mean, it's been uh, argued that uh, Officer Chauvin was uh, carrying out uh, a lawful arrest. So talk about the rules that govern uh, the use of force by uh, police officers? Well, well, obviously, as we know, use of force can be a legitimate and even necessary tool of law enforcement if it fulfills the criteria of, we say, legality, necessity, proportionality, and precaution. Let me quickly summarize this in a nutshell. So legality simply says that a police officer can only use force when they try to pursue a lawful purpose, such as an arrest or uh, in the present case. Um, then necessity asks, well, how much force? Well, do I need to use force to achieve that lawful purpose? And if I don't need to use force, well, I can't use force. And if I need to use force, I can use force, but only as much as is necessary. So how much force do I really need to use um, uh, to, and how much harm do I need to cause in achieving that lawful purpose. And then the third uh, criterion of proportionality asks, well, the minimum harm that I'm likely to cause with that necessary force, is that really justified in, in terms of the seriousness of the crime I'm trying to address? Um, and reminding everybody that George Floyd was 
suspected or alleged to have used a fake $20 bill, which even if he had done that would be just a minor offense. So uh, it would not be justified to risk somebody's life, certainly, uh, even you know, to, to, to enforce the law on such a petty matter, really. And then the fourth kind of uh, requirement is the requirement of precaution, which just generally obliges police officers to plan and conduct their operations, always with a view to try to avoid to the maximum uh, extent possible, the use of force and certainly the use of excessive or inappropriate force. So they, they constantly have to try to de-escalate situations rather than escalating them and trying to, to, uh, to, to ensure that no one gets harmed to the extent possible. Now, to, to be fair, you have to recognize that police officers have a very difficult job. Uh, it's easy to sit, you know, in the armchair with the luxury of hindsight and then judge people from the certainty of those facts that maybe he didn't know at the moment. So they often have to intervene in situations quickly uh, that are unpredictable. They may be confronted with people that are alleged to have committed petty crimes, but maybe they're innocent, these people. Maybe they actually did commit a petty crime, or maybe they're actually heavy criminals that were just by accident caught to commit a, by, while they were committing a petty crime, but actually they're armed and they're really dangerous and they have already killed people. They don't know that. So we have to give them certain credit, you know, for that uncertainty. And um, in that sense, um, they are responsible, police officers, to ensure that the situation doesn't escalate into a dangerous situation for everybody involved, including the suspect, uh, potential victims and themselves. So when we look at how things evolved, uh, from the video footage, taken from the video footage that we know uh, how that case evolved, we can see that George Floyd initially um, was confronted by the police officer when he was sitting in his car and he, he refused to get out of his car. And so now the police officer, this is the first point where you can escalate the situation or de-escalate. And, uh, you know, we, we, we can see that he was forcibly dragged out of the car. He's a, uh, he, he, he was a big man. So Perhaps the police officers were afraid that he would be stronger than, than they were and tended to use more force and actually pull him out of the car at gunpoint. Now, this can cause anxiety in, in a person like George Floyd. So the police officers in their training um, uh, have to anticipate these types of things um, that someone can then start to struggle, not because he's a criminal and he wants to refuse arrest, but because he's panicking. Simply, he's afraid. Uh, you know, to be uh, uh, manhandled that way uh, 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 in gunpoint. So um, I think there we can see that we have a clear escalation of the violence happening and it, he's being wrestled to the ground when he doesn't want to get into the police car and taken into that position in which he died nine minutes later where Officer Chauvin was kneeling on his, on his neck. At the latest, at this point, when he was on the ground, even if we don't discuss what happened before, whether it was appropriate or not. Now, George Floyd is 100% under control by the law enforcement officers, and they become 100% responsible for his life and well-being. And so here, they should have stabilized the situation, you know, handcuffed him in a, in a position where he cannot escape, but where he can freely breathe, he can relax, we can de-escalate, we can talk to him, calm him down, explain that, look, Nothing dangerous is going to happen. We just want to know who you are and what really happened with that $20 bill. Don't be afraid. You know, you can calm people down. You have to calm, to calm them down. But what we can see here is 
that from that point on, clearly the force that was used was excessive. It was not necessary. George Floyd did not resist. Uh, he could have been stabilized in that situation. And that was clearly visible to everybody around. I mean, even bystanders who have no experience, they're not medical doctors, they're not police officers. They, they just immediately saw this is a dangerous situation. The person can, can die. And they try to draw the attention of the police officers to, to, that, to that risk. And the three officers simply refused to take that into account. And that's where the criminal responsibility clearly comes in and where I have no doubts that this is this excessive use of force. And so, so uh, the, the verdict in my view is absolutely justified. All right, well, let me just say this, that the, uh, you know, Chauvin's behavior, as you know, has been condemned by the, the police chief of that city and other officials across the country. Uh, does this mean that he is the proverbial bad apple in uh, an otherwise uh, healthy uh, police force in this country? Well, I, I think that it's obviously difficult to say from the outside, uh, but when you look at his behavior, I don't think that is the case. Um, I don't think we can also say that you know, justice has been simply served in this case um, um, uh, completely. It has been served to a certain extent that uh, the individual has been held to account as he should be for a crime he has uh, committed, Officer Chauvin, that is, in this case. Um, but clearly, justice cannot be returned by a verdict like this to the family, to, you know, you cannot return George Floyd's life, um, the friends. Uh, so the damage is irreversible. And so here we have to look at this very serious event and uh, look what is the, the really the, the, the background of this. The narrative of the bad apple is a very dangerous one because it somehow suggests that we have a scapegoat, that this person has committed a crime, he is the bad guy and, and everybody else can basically wash their hands uh, in innocence. And that's not the case here um, because bad apples don't grow on healthy trees. You see, already the Bible says, by its fruit, you shall know the tree. And this is really a proverb that is, that is true. Uh, even in healthy military and police forces, there can be individuals that have become bad apples. That's true. It, it, it does happen. They betray the, the values of the, of the, the, the force. They, 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 they violate the law. Um, but such real bad apples, they have long, let's say, fallen off the tree, and they know it. So had Officer Chauvin uh, been such a singular, exceptional bad apple, he would have known that he was doing something wrong and he would, that he would be held accountable for it. And so he would never have murdered George Floyd on camera. Right. Here, really, let's look at this. The fact that he and his fellow officers, they knew they were being filmed. They allowed this gruesome scene to be filmed and witnessed by countless Biden Sanders. Everybody was aware that this man's life was at stake. This shows that these officers were genuinely convinced that they were almost entitled to kill George Floyd or certainly to put his life at risk and that they did not have to expect any form of accountability for it. But this kind of attitude is the product of a rotten tree. It's not a bad apple, it's a rotten tree, a police culture that has gone out of control. Wow. We now, are that does not... And let me just let me just clarify this. I think it's very important. It is, I'm not saying that every police officer is a criminal. 
you know. Uh, it, I genuinely believe that, look, like everywhere, you know, uh, in all professions, police officers, most of them are doing their best to carry out their very difficult job in, in, in respect for human rights and dignity and with minimal resort to violence. But the sheer number of cases we see of people that get needlessly brutalized or even killed by police officers, not only in the US, but throughout the world, that shows that we have an increasingly misguided culture of tolerance and impunity for police violence. Yeah, it seems to be an epidemic uh, during this pandemic uh, of, of police uh, misbehavior. It, it is widespread. Uh, we are talking with Nils Melzer, the special rapporteur on torture uh, at the uh, United Nations. Uh, I'm Randy Credical. This is Randy Credical live on the fly on 99.5 FM in New York City. We're, we are talking about the uh, George Floyd uh, verdict. Uh, I, I wanna uh, continue. Uh, what, in your opinion, are some of the reasons uh, for this misguided uh, police culture? Well, I believe that it has a lot to do with uh, the identity that police uh, uh, officers give themselves, that the police have basically lost any sense of duty to serve the community. Instead, they perceive the population as an enemy. And let me tell you, here's why, in my view. In the last decades, particularly since 9-11, we can witness an increasing militarization of the police not only in the US, but throughout the world. We have blurred the distinction between war and peace. We are at, in a constant war against terror, both abroad and at home. Uh, police are increasingly trained and equipped in the same way as military forces, and they even dress like military officers. So it is no surprise that they, they, they develop the same attitudes that are similar to military forces that operate in hostile environments of war. So everyone could be a terrorist. Every citizen is a potential enemy. So with this attitude, we no longer strive to serve and uh, help and protect the community, but we believe that we have to fight and control and subjugate the community. It's like they're an occupying force, uh, you right. know, as it were, right? Um, so, uh, well, who is responsible uh, for this uh, development? I mean, how, how do we change this? And what are your uh, recommendations for change? Well, of course, individual officers do have their own individual responsibility and they have to be held to account for criminal conduct, such as, as it has been done now with officers Chauvin. That's important. But it really is also the force uh, as a whole, the commanders, and in particular, the political leadership, the state governors, and for the federal police, military forces, and intelligence services, also the the presidency and uh, their administration, which bear the primary responsibility for uh, fostering a culture of service and transparency and accountability. You cannot, Randy, you simply cannot tolerate military forces committing war crimes abroad, such as those that are shown in the infamous collateral murder video, another infamous uh, video, or you cannot have the CIA kidnap and torture countless people around the world as a matter of policy and not prosecute any of these atrocious crimes, but uh, uh, grant impunity to criminals in uniform, basically, and then expect your law enforcement officers at home to abide by the law and treat your own citizens with respect and dignity. It just doesn't work like that. If a government grants impunity to its officials, when they torture and rape and murder abroad, these crimes will eventually come back to haunt you at home. 
And we have seen that in the George Floyd case, it can become a veritable nightmare for your own population. Because just as Derek Chauvin is not just an exception and a bad apple in the police force, so do Abu Ghraib torture and the collateral murder massacre were not exceptional events either. So in all these cases, we happen to know about these facts because they have been filmed or photographed. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about it. But in all those cases, therefore, you know, these are only the tip of the iceberg, the visible tip of the iceberg of, uh, uh, of, of a huge hidden kind of part of, of, of murder and torture and abuse that is being kept secret and classified and that the government does not want the American public and the world public to know about. And that's why also it is so important to insist on transparency, on accountability, on press freedom and effective public oversight over intelligence services and government. Well, you know, we would not have, uh, this case wouldn't have gone forward if not for video. And uh, everyone responded uh, to the video, uh, politicians, uh, you know, activists, uh, you know, around the world, not just in the US, around the world. And, and so, uh, as you said, this is something that we do, the military does overseas. Uh, why why uh, isn't the public uh, outraged by the uh, collateral damage and, and the war logs, uh, the videos of the two Reuters uh, reporters who were shot? Now, why are they trying to suppress that? Shouldn't we be outraged and shouldn't there be some kind of accountability for that instead of going after Julian Assange? Well, obviously, I mean, in that case, it was Julian Assange and his organization, WikiLeaks, that, that, that published uh, uh, that video. And, and along with it, uh, you know, plenty of other evidence for war crimes and torture and, and corruption. And uh, none of these crimes have ever been prosecuted. But then the whistleblower, Chelsea Manning, that actually provided that information, and Julian Assange, the publisher, a foreign publisher who did not have any duty of confidentiality towards the, uh, the US government, um, he published it. So these two people are being prosecuted for that. And, and I mean, we're talking about draconian prison sentences. I mean, Julian Assange is facing 175 years in prison for a nonviolent person who's never harmed anybody. Uh, it, the whole argument that his publications have you know, harmed uh, US lives, uh, there's no evidence that the US government has not been able to, to point to even any hints that that is true. And, uh, and so he is being, uh, fa he's facing that, that, that prison sentence and an espionage trial in the, in, in, in the US and is being uh, you know, persecuted, I have to say, already for more than a decade. And while those that have actually committed the real crimes, we have video footage on, uh, they walk free. Well, you know, it, it, to me, it, it's tantamount to the young uh, teenager who uh, videotaped the, uh, the Floyd assassination, yeah. prosecuting her. You know, it's like, all right, we're going to get her for videotaping this and showing it to the world. Uh, we're going to go after her. That's what they've done to Julian Assange, who has shown us uh, war crimes. Around absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If, it, if they did the same as they did with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, if they did the same in the George Floyd case, it would mean that the police officers go free. They're not even being investigated, not tried or convicted. They're not even being arrested and investigated 
while the person who filmed this and put it on the internet would be, you know, put in solitary confinement for the rest of her life. Right. Uh, we're talking with Nils Melzer, who has a new book out, by the way, and he, he discusses this in great detail. It's called The Case of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. Uh, and it's a bestseller now. It's in German. It's a bestseller. Uh, you can get it on Amazon if you read German, but it will be out in English in a couple of months. And uh, it really, just the, uh, the introduction, I read the introduction like eight or nine pages and I said, I want the entire 200 pages. Um, tell us about this uh, book, uh, the case of Julian Assange, uh, Mr. Melzer. Well, yeah, you know, usually special rapporteurs of the UN uh, don't write books about individual cases because, uh, you know, when, when we observe cases of torture and ill treatment, we intervene with the governments and uh, through diplomatic channels. And then the governments who have mandated me to do that, uh, to investigate these cases, well, then they take over and investigate the case and, and bring perpetrators to justice. Now, in this case, um, the involved states, we're talking about the US, the UK, Sweden, and Ecuador. So, I mean, rule of law democracies uh, of the West, they all refused to enter in a constructive dialogue with me. They refused to answer my questions, to give me the evidence I needed, so I couldn't investigate it, and they refused to take measures to protect Julian Assange's human rights. And so uh, when I did that, I did follow-up letters, I informed the General Assembly in New York, I informed the Human Rights Council in Geneva and the High Commissioner, and there was no reaction. There's just, it's just like a dark family secret that everybody knows about, but no one dares to talk about. And so I felt I need to inform the public that the institutions and uh, mechanisms we have created to protect our human rights, they don't function in practice when the national security state is being uh, you know, challenged. Well, this is, uh, this is quite uh, an epic, uh... A piece of work. Uh, you've been working on it. You've been there for Julian Assange for a long time. We only got a minute left. Um, your uh, your thoughts about uh, the the trial that he just went through, and uh, what's your outlook uh, toward the towards the future uh, of Julian Assange? We have less than two minutes. Yeah, you see, there's there's obviously countless left and right turns that this could take at any moment. But if you look at the big picture. For 10 years, it has been stable. You have four countries persecuting Julian Assange, using prosecution for political purposes, which makes the prosecution becoming persecution in order to silence him, in order to, to make a, set an example, to threaten, to intimidate all other journalists in the world, saying, if you ever get the idea of doing what Julian Assange has done to, to publish our dirty secrets, then that's what's going to happen to you. So I don't expect that these states have invested millions in his persecution just to let him go. They will ensure that he uh, remains in prison or is broken psychologically before he's released. Okay, we're gonna uh, get you back on real soon and, and really uh, dig into this book uh, on, on Julian Assange. It's called The Case of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution by Niels Melzer. Uh, it will be out soon in English. Uh, and Verso is the uh, publisher of the book. I want to thank you uh, for uh, being on the show uh, today and uh, doing this twice, basically. We'll put the other one on the website uh, later on. Uh, uh, 
Dr. Melzer, uh, once again, it, it really is a pleasure. Uh, this is Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly, 99.5 FM in New York City. We've been talking to Professor Nils Melzer. Uh, once again, much. thank you, uh, Professor Melzer. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll see you soon, folks.